All right. Good morning, church. What an exciting passage, huh? <laughs> Maybe you're wondering, what in the world is Pastor Wade going to do with that text? You know, when I was, uh, when Brent and I were charting out this series, um, I realized Lake of Fire was going to land on the day we were doing Thanksgiving. I was like, oh, man, this is such a disconnect. I'm so thankful, Lake of Fire. I'm so thankful, Lake of Fire. But there was no way to get around it. And, you know, as I was digging into the text um, these last couple of weeks, um, there can be a thankfulness for, I think, what God will be doing with and through the fire that we hear about here. We are almost near the finishing line of the beginning and the end series, and today is the Lake of Fire. Let's do a little review in a, in a different sort of way. We sort of have two teams in the book of Revelation. You've got Team Dragon, who is in Babylon. And Babylon, again, is Rome, but Babylon is an archetype for systems that are opposed to what God is doing in his work in the world. Babylon carries out the mission of the dragon. The dragon is Satan. The beasts, there's evil rulers, evil systems, Nero specifically, and propaganda, the, the marketing, if you will, that props up this system of injustice. So that's Team Dragon, and they're represented as being in Babylon. The second team is Team Lamb, and Team Lamb is in New Jerusalem. Here we see that God is on the throne, that the Lamb is at the center of the universe, that there are faithful witnesses, those who are following God, those who both were faithful and died because of their faithfulness, and those who were faithful and, and didn't perish. But this big multitude of faithful witnesses. We have the woman who has multiple meanings from Eve to Israel to the church. And then finally, we have New Jerusalem, this future ideal city representing new creation. So two tensions here, Babylon and New Jerusalem, the dragon and the Jesus. So that's that's the, the game plan as we go through and as we step into the lake of fire. Now, next week, we get to finish in this wonderful story of hope. We get to uh, go into Revelation 21 and 22 that God is making all things new. Um, today, not quite as much fun. What has to happen before new creation fully arrives? So in order for that to happen, judgment must be rendered. I think of judgment this way. God's judgment functions within his broader plan to reconcile all things. God's judgment is aimed at healing, is aimed at refining, not just evil and systems of injustice, but that very thing in our own lives, to refine us so we are ready for new creation, to refine us so that we can live in the new Jerusalem. What in us needs to be burned away? These chapters, Revelation 19 and 20, are more so about what happens, the judgment, than about how it happens. We'll hear about the lake of fire today. Now, remember, Revelation is apocalyptic. It's symbolic. It's prophetic, not so much in a predictive sense, but a truth-telling sense, and it's a letter. So while it is quite difficult for us to understand some of the metaphor and symbols, it would have been understood by its original audience. So Revelation 19, just for summary's sake, we see, we see that the beast is defeated. 
The beast is thrown into the fire. The beast in a literal sense back then was Nero, but it's nations that are against God's ways. And this is about justice, not revenge. This isn't about God getting back at them, but this is about justice being rendered. Jesus goes into battle, but he already has blood on him before he goes into battle. And that blood is his own blood, not the blood of the opposition. Jesus has a sword, but that sword is truth, his truth. Jesus isn't actually killing people. He is giving up his own life. We see this Old Testament image that is used in both Isaiah and Ezekiel of birds feasting on corpses, and it's an image of destruction, an image of evil being ended. In Revelation 21 to 6, the passage right before um, some of the verses we're going to get to, we see that the faithful witnesses, those followers of the Lamb, they reign for a thousand years. Now, the millennium, this thousand years, is only mentioned three times in Scripture. And so I just caution people not to sort of form a whole theology around what this millennium is. But it's this 10 times 10 times 10, this number of completion meaning it takes a long time for God to complete his purposes in this world. So far, we have 2,000 years from the time of Christ. It is taking a while, but he is still working. So if beasts are nations, what does it mean for a nation to be tormented day and night? What does it mean for that to happen? What does that look like? How do you torment an empire? When we get to 21 and 22, we'll see that all of the nations are, in fact, around the throne worshiping God. So something is happening between 19 and 21 and 22 that God is working at, and we get this image of fire in it. Richard Bachman talks about this in terms of the millennium. He says, the theological point of the millennium is solely to demonstrate the triumph of the martyrs, that God's people will eventually be victorious. Now, let's go into 7 to 10. This is a few verses before we get into the reading that Anita did. And thank you, Anita, for the reading. Thank you, Solomon, for your prayers. Verse 7, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire comes down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever. So again, what does it mean for the nations to be tormented day and night forever? This is an image here that we find in the Old Testament. Remember, Revelation has more references to the Old Testament than the whole of the New Testament. By some counts, over 500 references. And this is a picture found in Ezekiel 38, where there is the cleansing of Israel itself, cleansing the heart of Israel and returning them from exile. Magog is a nation and Gog its king. But for John, these are representing two different nations from the four corners of the earth. Basically, anything that is not of God, anything opposed to God. Now, why is Satan released? In verse 7, Satan is released from prison. It seems a bit bizarre. 
and um, difficult to understand. But in some way, it seems like it's a part of God's plan to ensure that all evil, every trace of evil, is rooted out in the world, not one stone unturned, allowing for the transformation and the welcome of the new heaven and the new earth. Satan, the accuser, will do all he can to prevent that from happening and must be destroyed. Now we'll get to the passage that uh, Anita read for us, verse 11 to 15. And this, this part of scripture is often called the white throne judgment, the great white throne. We had talked about the day of the Lord a few weeks ago. There are little d day of the Lords where there is judgment, um, but this is the big day, the final judgment, if you will. And God is on the throne. And the, ju- the dead were judged according to what they had done. And we see in verse 13 that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. All right, so what does that mean? Death and Hades are thrown into the fire. They were destroyed never to torment humanity again. See, Babylon is present um, until the dragon is tossed into the fiery lake. God's lamb is at war with the dragon and Babylon throughout history these last 2,000 years. This is a parallel to Daniel 7, where Daniel 7 is talking about the beasts and their destruction, except now John is applying the same imagery to Jesus himself. Satan summons the nations for battle, but there is no battle. The white horse rides into battle covered in his own blood with a sword that is revealing who he is, his truth. Pastor Brenda spoke about Babylon a couple weeks ago. Babylon was defeated in chapter 18. In chapter 19, we see that the beast meet their doom into the fire, and now the dragon has been destroyed. God, the creator, sits on his throne at the center of the universe for this final judgment. And here we see the dead were judged according to what they had done. So there's an accounting for how we have lived our lives. And then finally, after that, death in Hades itself and the place of the dead are finally destroyed. Scott McKnight says it this way. The fiery lake is the place where all evil, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, and their armies is eradicated. The fiery lake is where evil is eradicated. This is not a place of vindictive punishment, but the place where evil is erased so the new Jerusalem can be established and God's people can enjoy life without harassment of evil and injustice, violence. Now, recognize that there is a lot of hyperbole in Revelation. Isaiah says a very similar thing in Isaiah 34 about the judgment of Edom. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur. Her land will become a blazing pitch. Its smoke will rise forever. This word forever in scripture is often hyperbole. The smoke of Edom is not, in fact, rising forever, but it's a picture of its destruction. Forever can mean a period of time, but it feels like forever. Forever can also refer to conditions that are continuing to be met, but if conditions are broken, then forever is not forever. So when we read forever, think about 
maybe ways that we talk about forever. I haven't seen him in forever, right? I haven't eaten in forever. And so sometimes there's this similar language of hyperbole that we see in Scripture and in these passages as well. Paul Spilsbury says this, by using extreme images to depict God's response to evil, John forces us to come to terms with the magnitude of the problem of sin. Sin is not just some small thing. It infects all of what we see around us. And so God wants to cleanse that part of the world out. The purpose of the judgment is to make it so clear about God's opposition to evil. Once that has happened, God is fully revealed. Evil has been cleared out. New creation can fully arrive. New Jerusalem is here. What we have known in part will now be known fully. Remember this journey of heaven and earth where we're split, right? During the fall, God had created us good. He created his creation good. Sin enters the picture, and all of a sudden, heaven and earth are no longer together. And yet Jesus' plan is to continue to bring heaven back to earth, and we see that throughout Scripture. We see it in Jesus' prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we get this completely overlap of heaven and earth next week. But before that can happen, judgment must be rendered. So the fiery lake, we see... We see what happens. We see that evil is eradicated, but not so much how. This is symbolic. June last year, I did a sermon on hell. And if you want the full sermon, um, we can send you that link. But it was June 19th of 2022, where I go into more detail about hell and how it's talked about in Scripture. There are really three main words for it in Scripture, Sheol, Hades and Gehenna. In this passage, we get the word Hades, and it's the Greek word that we see in the New Testament. And it's famously similar to Sheol, this word in the Old Testament, in Hebrew. And it's basically the place of the dead, the place of the dead. And Gehenna is a very interesting word because it's an actual place in Jesus' time. It was the city dump outside of Jerusalem where there was a fire day and night burning the trash. And we get that sort of image in the fiery, fiery lake. It's where they took the rubbish out. It's where things were cleared out. Gehenna was also the valley in the Old Testament known by the Israelites for worshiping other gods. Sacrificing children to these gods is what happened in this place. So it's a symbol of where evil is happening. It's a symbol of a trash dump. It's a symbol of things being burned up. And these are fires in Gehenna that are lit by human hands. It's an inevitable way of life that evil leads to our own destruction. When hell is spoken of in the Bible, it's always used to warn religious people. Speaking of hell is used to warn religious people. It's never used to motivate non-believers to turn to Jesus. See, there are parts of old creation, there are parts of our world that are not going to make it into new creation. What are the things in our current world or in our lives that are not going to make it? We'll spend some time reflecting on that later. But you be, begin to think of it now. What will not make it into New Jerusalem in our society? 
Where do we see oppression? Where do we see evil? Where do we see manipulation? Where do we see taking advantage of others? Where do we see income gaps so great that we've got people in extreme poverty in our very city? What is not going to make it in? And then in a more personal sense, what in our own life is not going to make it in? So there are, you know, sort of many views of hell. And um, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail on these. These are three main views, three plus one um, views of hell. The one I grew up with is basically labeled eternal conscious torment, meaning that those who are unsaved will be tormented forever. They will be eternally conscious, aware, and they will be tormented. This is what we get sort of in Dante's sort of writing, right? This, this view here really is not so much based in Scripture as it is in writings over the last 2,000 years. But I've put Scriptures there that adherents of these views will refer to. I'm not going to talk about that uh, more right now. Again, this was in the sermon from a year ago. A second main view is annihilationism. So in this view, evil is destroyed, right? For eternal conscious torment, evil still exists. It's just cordoned off. It's just moved away. It's moved outside of the city. It's not in New Jerusalem. But annihilationism, evil is destroyed forever. It no longer exists anywhere. And the fire is, a, is used for destruction, whereas in eternal conscious torment, it's meant to bring suffering so you will no longer be conscious in this. It will just end. It will cease to exist. And there's some scriptures there that, that support that. The third view is ultimate rec reconciliation, where everyone lives forever. The unsaved will be refined and restored into new creation. So the evil is converted. It is transformed. It is redeemed, both in the world and in our lives. And the fire is used as a refiner's fire for restoration. And you can see some scriptures that are used there for that as well. I think it's helpful to hold these things loosely, um, but feel free to dig into your own study. I have lots more on that. I would say the eternal conscious torment, for me, has the least biblical support of any of those views. Because basically it says that your finite sin... Your sin in this world, however long you might live, your finite sin will be punished forever, infinitely punished for finite sin. And to me, that just conflicts with God's view of justice in Scripture. It just does not connect. So finite sin, to me, cannot justify infinite torture. Sky Jathani says it this way. He says there's absolutely no biblical support for the notion that eternal torture is just the consequence for our sin because the God we've sinned against is eternal. But to be honest, um, sort of eternal conscious torment is what I grew up with, and it's what sort of um, got me to start my relationship with Jesus. Now, I didn't so much have a relationship with Jesus, but I just knew I didn't want to go to hell because our church spoke a lot about it, and it sounded awful, and I didn't want to go there. And so for me, my salvation became about avoiding hell, but not really living into new creation, not really bringing new creation, um, really just a, a gospel of sin management and not a gospel of transformation. Fear, though, can be a powerful motivator. 
religions love to use fear. Sometimes the workplace loves to use fear because it is powerful, but there is a more powerful motivator, and that is love. That is God's motivation. Also, eternal conscious torment really sort of says that heaven and hell are things in the future. And I've known people that have experienced real hell right here, right now, from what they've gone through. But also real heaven. Jesus prays heaven on earth, and we can experience glimpses of that heaven now. Now, I want to look at the fourth view there, purgatory. Um, it's not so much a view of heaven and hell, um, and there's not so much scriptural evidence for it. It's the traditional Catholic view of this refining process, this purifying process that will allow for people to enter into new creation. Uh, Matthew 12, 32 is one verse there that, that might sort of reference this. Um, but I have found it a hopeful and helpful way to think about how does this actually happen in our own lives and in the world? How does that refinement happen? Um, how do we go from evil, the nations being thrown into the fire, to all the nations being around the throne? How do we ourselves, though forgiven and still sinning, how do we go from that to actually into new creation where there is no more sin, there is no more death, there is no more suffering. So I find the concept helpful and an interesting way to think about this. In our men's group, um, the Saturday before last, um, John Tang has been leading that lately, and he lifted up this quote from Pope Benedict, which says this, it seems clear that the fire of the judgment of which the Bible speaks is not a form of punishment beyond the grave, but rather the Lord himself, whom we encounter at the moment of judgment. But if we consider the matter clearly, just what does that mean? It means that when we come face to face with the Lord in judgment, all the straw and hay of our life will be consumed, and nothing will be left but that which is truly lasting. It means that we are transformed by our encounter with Christ into what we really could and should be. So the fire isn't so much punishment, but the fire is purifying. You know, as I've studied hell over the years, you know, sort of how do I make sense of it personally? And, and this is as close as I can to understanding the concept that, that hell is the love of God refused. Hell is the love of God refused. I'm convinced that nobody that calls on God for mercy will be refused. Do we get a second chance to follow Jesus after we have died? Scripture is not clear about it. We're not sure how that judgment actually takes place in this passage here, it talks about everybody being judged for basically how they've lived their lives. We see references to Jesus after his death on the cross descending into hell and bringing good news to those that are there. We see that ultimately every knee will bow and declare Jesus is Lord. But God also respects our free will. He respects our ability to choose or not to choose his love. And this seems to be an important part of how God has created us to begin with as he placed us in creation at the garden, whether to choose or not to choose. And this kind of aligns with how C.S. Lewis depicts it. He says, all that are in hell, choose it. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. But we have to hold loosely how this will all happen. We know that God is opposed to evil and that evil will not make it into new creation. How does that look and happen? We must 
bring some humility to our interpretation. But what is clear is that how we live really matters. We'll skip that one for now. I want to finish with Acts 3, 19 to 20. It says this, Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. See, Hebrew, the Hebrew word for repent is teshuva. It means you've been on the path and, and you've veered off the path and the path has not led to flourishing, but you can come back to the path, the path that leads to life. And when you're on that path, there's actually a joy that you experience, a time of refreshing. There's an easiness to your walk when you are on the path that leads to flourishing. See, to repent means to change your mind about something, to have your world turned upside down and go, you know what, I thought the world worked this way, and maybe the world does work that way, but that's not how God works. He turns things upside down. There is a lifting of a burden when we walk in God's ways. And no matter how far off the path you've gone, you can always come back. What are those things in our lives that are more connected to old creation than new? We're going to spend some time in reflection, and the worship team will play in, in a couple of minutes about that. What are the things in your life that you would like to confess and repent of? What are those things that are leading you away from God's love? Maybe it's manipulation based on fear. Maybe it's saying the ends justify the means. Maybe it's using other people. Maybe it's greed or being self-centered or wanting to be in control. What are those things in new creation that you are longing for? being motivated by love, not using other people, but serving them, being generous and kind and Christ-centered. I have to reflect on my own life. What are the things in me that are not going to make it into new creation? When I'm self-centered, when I'm insecure, when I'm more interested in being right than loving well, I repent. What are you holding on to that's no longer helpful? Let's spend some time in reflection as the team leads us. God, we just invite your spirit into this time. You are the bringer of life, and yet we know you are refining us and purifying us. So God, we want to join you in that process. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.